Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, Can You Dig It? Archaeology and Assyria. The date, June 2023, and my name is Belisarius Avis. Every archaeologist knows in his heart why he digs. He digs in pity and in humility that the dead may live again, that what is past may not be forever lost, that something may be salvaged from the wreck of ages. Jeffrey Bibby, The Testimony of the Spade. Archaeology holds all the keys to understanding who we are and where we come from. Archaeologist Sarah Parkak. All your life has been spent in pursuit of archaeological relics. Inside the ark are treasures beyond your wildest aspirations. You want to see it opened as well as I. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. But this, this is history. Rene Belloc, the mercenary archaeologist villain in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And finally, that belongs in a museum, young and adult Indiana Jones, from the movie The Last Crusade. I love the Indiana Jones movies, though I would probably be disappointed by the latest one, The Destiny of the Dial. As I have been disappointed with the latest Star Wars, Star Trek, and Lord of the Rings productions, I still have those first three movies, though. I omit Crystal Skull from that. I still have Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, and The Last Crusade. They were exciting, adventurous, and funny. One of my favorite moments, when his long-lost love, Marion Ravenswood, says to Indy, this is after he has been beaten, dragged from a truck, and dumped into a tomb. She says to him, you're not the man I knew ten years ago. And Indy responds, It's not the years, it's the mileage. There are days I know precisely how Indy felt. But Indy himself is probably as much of an archaeologist as Lara Croft or Rick O'Connell from the Mummy series. Tomb raiding and treasure hunting look like great fun in the movies, but real archaeology is real work. Often hot, cold, tedious, backbreaking, and thankless work. I have been on actual archaeological digs. At my school, Professor Ronald J. Mason was a good teacher and even a better man. I cannot forget that he had a sign on his office door saying, My wife is an archaeologist too. She really digs me. Even as a callow 19-year-old, I was a sucker for that sort of cringe joke that underlay genuine affection for one's mate. But unlike Jones or Croft, Mason was the real thing, as I can attest. One of the digs I went to was on an Oneida Native American site in northern Wisconsin. Now, these sites resulted from forced removal from eastern locations where the Oneida originally resided, including New York. They were relocated somewhere around the early 1800s. And later we will see the pioneers in forced displacement. But this was an American version, one that I saw close. The United Dig yielded no secret passages, booby traps, or solid gold totems sitting on a dais guarded by primitives armed with spears and blowguns. Nor were the pottery that I managed to dig up and the building foundations that I saw 
protected by some 600-year-old knight who would speak modern English. My knit with the last crusade was the knight guarding the Holy Grail should have spoken either Latin or English nearer to Chaucer than, uh, well, Boris Johnson, which is what we got in the movie. No, my dig was a lot of brushing. Every six months, I turn myself over to a dental hygienist who lectures me about flossing. But with Professor Mason, I brushed enough to clean the teeth of a fair-sized Chicago suburb. And did all of this brushing yield an arc that I might use to gain worldly domination over my fellow humans, only to have my face melted for my hubris by the wrath of God? Well, not quite. My time there yielded about, well, 16 pottery shards comprising parts of three different vases. No, it was not some jade diamond as in the mummy movies. Unfortunately, I did not inadvertently release some ancient Oneida Wendigo that would yield doom to the world. But what I did find was exciting in its own right. These vases and the pottery shards that made them up showed us many things. What was these people's technological prowess? How did they manage water and food? What was the writing on the pottery? And what did that tell us about their culture and society? Where were the shards? Find enough, and you can discern the size of the populations and how far they ranged. But, frankly, the painstaking nature of the work was not for me. Enough days with a tiny brush, kneeling all day in the dirt and the hot summers, or the snow and freezing winters, was not my life's ambition. Instead, I would take the extraordinary work of those like Professor Mason, write the findings into the record, and use them to tell a piece of the story of humanity. National Geographic describes archaeology as studying the human past using material remains. These remains can be any objects people created, modified, or used. The archaeological record includes artifacts, architecture, biofacts, or even ecofacts, sites, and cultural landscapes. In thinking of this definition and juxtaposing it against history, I like this interpretation from the Oklahoma Historical Society. How are history and archaeology related? History and archaeology both study historical people and things. Specifically, historians study older documents and artifacts and create an interpretation of the past for the public. Archaeologists excavate artifacts that both archaeologists and historians study. And archaeologists also look at historical documents, but typically use them as background information on the site. They often study the same things, but do so from different viewpoints. And how are they different? Well, archaeologists are more concerned, again, with that physical evidence. Historians rely more on documentary evidence to support their work. But when we look at the Assyrians, we have thousands of documents, including everything from lists of wares in a trading caravan to the names of their kings. But with translations, I can study these documents. But here's the problem. Since they were buried for thousands of years, I need the archaeologists to find the documents before I can do my work. Now, Sarah and Helen Parkak is as close as you will get to a famous archaeologist. She has pioneered using satellite imagery to identify potential archaeological sites in Egypt, other sites in the former Roman Empire, and even Central America. 
She became so famous with this technique that she was featured on shows like Stephen Colbert, well, when he was not busy interviewing actors or syncophantically providing platforms to liberal politicians. Parkak is a professor of anthropology and director of laboratory for global observation at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And I like this part. In partnership with her husband, Greg Mumford, she directs survey and excavation projects in the Fayyum, Sinai, and Egypt's East Delta. She says, when you think about archaeology, archaeology is the only field that allows us to tell the story of 99% of our history before 3000 BCE and writing. Couldn't agree with her more there. What I would also note, as I did before, is, is that because a lot of the writing itself is buried or hidden away, that, again, she needs to do her work before I can do mine. I love how she works with her husband. There's something I've noticed about archaeologists. Historians are often married to people with other vocations, but archaeologists seem to be married to, well, other archaeologists, thinking this has to do with the nature of the profession. Now, however, as with many of these academicians, my evaluation of Parkek is not without mixed feelings. She is an avowed liberal and has said some, well, frankly, detrimental things about Trump supporters and even Rush Limbaugh. This also explains her appearance on Colbert. The archaeologist, who might claim to be an avowed conservative, no matter how significant their accomplishments, would not get a place on that couch. Parkak epitomizes that even if one is excellent at one thing, one can be, well, maybe ignorant of others. But her foolish politicizings do not deter from the value of bringing modern science and techniques to the field of archaeology. Which brings me to the Assyrians. If one can't get enough of Babylonian and Assyrian history, one could do much worse than one of the foremost scholars of this period, Yale Professor Eckhart Fromm, in his Assyria, The Rise and Fall of the World's First Empire. The author tells the epic story of Assyria and its formative role in global history. Now, when I had come upon this book originally, my thought of Assyria was always the sort of hyper-aggressive imperial dynasty that exists somewhere around 1000 BCE to around 600 and essentially sandwiched between two Babylonian empires, that of Hammurabi, who we'll talk a little bit later, and the one of Nebuchadnezzar, who was very famous for having, if you will, displaced the Jews and brought them all to Babylonia. And then in 550 or somewhere around there, you have the great Persian Empire, the Achaemenid uh, Empire founded by Cyrus. So, in some ways, they thought of Assyria as kind of sandwiched between them, just kind of another imperial thing. What Fromm, though, shows, and this is really interesting, is, is that the roots of Assyria as a trading town go back nearly a thousand years before the period that I had just described. That Assyria, as a state, had a continuity that lasted well over a millennia. So, Really interesting stuff and, a, and really a great book. Now, as he notes, Assyria's wide-ranging conquests have been long known from the Hebrew Bible and later Greek accounts. But nearly two centuries of research now permit a rich picture of the Assyrians and their empire 
beyond the battlefield. Remember how I was talking about how they were sort of hyper-aggressive? Well, what was also shown in this book is vast libraries and monumental sculptures. I think some of you might have seen those. And that they were an elaborate trading community. They had information networks and even had prominent roles for royal women. Eckert writes, The Assyrian civilization we have come to know is one marked by a complex mix of continuity and change as it wrestled, often more successfully than neighboring kingdoms, with major historical challenges. From attacks by foreign powers to changes in rainfall to major cultural shifts. Over some 1,400 years, until its rapid fall in the late 7th century BCE, the Assyrian state manages to preserve and cultivate a particular identity while simultaneously reinventing itself. And as I noted earlier, any study of the Assyrians, or really any of these civilizations, from the Babylonians to even the later Persians, involves a very strong dollop of archaeology. And Fromm actually does a little historiography of that. Fromm notes that Victorian-era archaeologists from Britain, France, and Germany were more in the mold of, let's say, an Indiana Jones than the Ronald Mason that I had talked about earlier. One of them was a, was a character named Paul Emile Bota, a treasure hunter and amateur archaeologist who was a French government official at the time that both the discovery of some Assyrian artifacts coupled with a European desire to learn more about ancient peoples. One of the key breakthroughs, though, was a, was a translation of Assyrian cuneiform and the discovery, not in Mesopotamia, but in Turkey, of thousands of documents that shed light on the origins of the Assyrian state. In fact, as Fromm shows, Assyria began not as an aggressive kingdom, but as a trading oligarchy based in the city of Asher. The location in Turkey was a trading post, and it was only later in the middle period from the 1300s to the 900s in the true imperial period, also called the Neo-Assyrian, from 934 through 609 BCE, was that sort of hyper-aggressive state that is often taught in world culture textbooks. Now, some of the more clever academy types like to jazz up their titles or their, their works of history. And in this case, I like the notation of the first empire or the first world empire. And as an ex-marketer, I get it. Want to sell something entertaining? Put in a first or a last in the title. When Marvel released the Captain America movie, they called it the first Avenger. The 2018 movie about Neil Armstrong was called First Man. And my favorite is Sylvester Stallone's First Blood. The problem with the sequel, set in Vietnam, was when they called it Rambo, First Blood, Part 2. Wait, shouldn't it have really been Rambo, Second Blood? The corollary is the last everything. Like The Last Emperor, about the end of the Qing Dynasty in China. Or it could have been called Last Empire as a book into Fromm's First Empire. Heck, there is even a Rambo Last Blood. Well, until either the studio or Stallone needs another check. Given the actor is now 76, they might call it Rambo Last Blood Transfusion. But I digress. When discussing the Assyrian Empire as a prototype for later states, Fromm's contention is... Well, it's highly plausible. 
He writes, Apart from occupying a prominent place in the cultural memory of later civilizations, the Assyrian state also served, first directly, and then mediated through more remote successor states as a model eagerly emulated by the subsequent imperial powers of Western Asia, from the Babylonian and Persian empires to the Abbasid and Ottoman caliphates of the Islamic period and beyond. As noted, I love Fromm's book, but not confident that the Assyrians really were the first empire. Let us define the imperial concept as an extensive groups of states or countries under a single supreme authority. As much as progressives or Marxists like to say, America is not an empire. Though we certainly boast of diversity, we are not separate nations welded together under monarchical authority. And as much as divisive elements of the left would have us believe, well, we feature one flag, and as Americans, we are one people. When a group of Romans would conquer Spain, Africa, Greece, or install a governor over them, that was empire. When the Mughals, originally from Afghanistan, conquered India, that too was an empire. And though we would not officially use that term today, China, with a single ruler, Xi Jinping, and having conquered from Tibet to Xinjiang, is really an empire in everything but name. So under this definition, I give you one of my favorite historical figures, if only for his super cool name, Sargon. I'm going to say it again, Sargon the Akkadian. Joshua Mark, writing for World History Encyclopedia, notes, Sargon's relatively speedy conquest of the entire Mesopotamian plain is startling, given the inability of Sumerian kings to control any area much more significant than two or three cities at one time. But the Sumerians were suffering from an increased gap between elite leadership and poor laborers. The rich used their combined religious and secular power to claim as much as three quarters of the land in any given city for themselves. And we talk about inequity? Sargon's relatively easy conquest of the area, not to mention his constant carping on his own non-aristocratic background, may reveal a successful appeal to the downtrodden members of Sumerian society to come over to his side. By presenting himself as a man of the people, Mark concludes, he was able to garner support for his cause and took Sumer with relative ease. Once the south of Mesopotamia was under control, he then went on to create the first multinational empire in history. The issue with Fromm's claim is Sargon predated the Middle Assyrian period and their first real conquests by about, oh, 900 years. And even before then, we have Hammurabi. The Babylonian kings who came before Hammurabi founded a relatively minor city-state. But in 1894 BCE, they controlled little territory outside the city itself. But in just a few years from that point, Hammurabi, yes, the law code guy and the subject of a previous podcast by yours truly, succeeding in uniting all of Mesopotamia under his rule. It sounds like another empire, which again was about 600 years before the Assyrian imperial state. So was Assyria the first empire? I would say not. But again, I give Fromm credit for trying to inject a little jazz into his title. 
Now, returning to archaeology, Fromm introduces us to a German named Walter Andre, who pursued digs at the beginning of the 20th century before World War I, whereas the focus at other sites had been on excavating royal palaces. Andre and his team directed most of their efforts to study private houses and temples, including that of the Assyrian state god Asher, the namesake of the founding city. Andre's excavation techniques were highly innovative. He recorded fine spots of individual objects, devised new methods to trace walls made of mugged brick, and carefully analyzed the archaeological layers that had accumulated over time to make sense of the site's complex stratigraphy. Archaeology thus slowly transcended its previous incarnation as a hunt for ancient treasure. I like to think of an evolution from the indie-like French Bota to Andre to my own Mason and to Parkak, who uses the latest science to learn where the sites exist. One of the differentiations that Fromm notes is that Egypt built with stone, whereas the Mesopotamians from Sargon to the Assyrians, to Nebuchadnezzar, version of Babylon, all built with mud bricks. Probably easier to build ziggurats than it is the traditional Egyptian pyramids with mud brick. The problem is, is that unlike the periods, they were not going to last in the same fashion. And then I would add that despite conquests from the Arabs in the 600s and the British in the 19th century, Egypt did not experience the same constant tramp of armies trudging along the shores of the Nile the same way all those armies trudged along the shores of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. One of the more interesting aspects of Assyrian imperial rule was the mass deportation of populations from one province to another including for work products in the major cities, especially during the Neo-Assyrian period, to the city of Nineveh, which at some point replaces Asher as the primary capital of Assyria. Now, a modern-day fictional example might be the Hunger Games Panem, where all of the provinces existed to serve the capital. When we think of the conflict over Israel, the Palestinians contend that they were there first, and Israel is the conquering oppressor. Of course, Israel predated Palestine, but the deportation of the Jews culminated in the horrible Jewish diaspora following the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem in 70 CE. But the first Jewish exile was the Assyrian exile, and this was the expulsion from the kingdom of Israel, or also called Samaria, begun by Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria in 733 BCE. This process was completed by Sargon II with the destruction entirely of the kingdom in 722 BCE, concluding a three-year siege of Samaria begun by Shalmaneser V. Fromm ends his introduction with a statement of why so many of us, and I would probably think that would include you as well, hear the whisper of the muse Cleo in our ears. He writes, this ancient civilization is actually much more in common with us than one might think. Assyria produced many features that, for better or for worse, are still to be found in the modern world. Long-distance trade, sophisticated communications networks, and the state-sponsored promotion of literature, science, and the arts, 
all the way to mass deportation, extreme violence in enemy countries, and the widespread use of political surveillance at home. Assyria, in other words, has much to teach us. Thank you for listening to this latest Conservative Historian podcast. I hope that you would listen to all of them. If you like this one, there's plenty more where that came from. And also, for those who are interested in Substack or have a subscription, I would check it out in a couple of months. New information is coming from the Conservative Historian, and we hope that you like it. This is Bell. Thanks for listening.